to the DC Debrief for Friday, December 8th, 2023. I'm your host, John Stolness, and coming up, funding for Ukraine and Israel stalls, university presidents pressed on anti-Semitism on campuses, global surveillance and Title IX on Capitol Hill, and I'm going to chat with Nathan Gonzalez from Inside Politics about the fourth GOP debate and Donald Trump's town hall on Fox News this week. All that and more coming up on this edition of the DC Debrief. And a reminder, folks, before we jump into the show, to tell your friends, family members, anyone you can find about the DC Debrief, let them know we're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever it is you get your podcasts. This is the very best recap of the week's top stories in Washington, D.C., without the opinion coming from me. I'm just going to give you the information, let you hear from all sides, and then you can decide what to do with it. That's what we do here at the DC Debrief. And if that's what you like and you think other folks would like it too, please let them know about the podcasts. All right, everybody, let's get into the debrief for this week. Israel and Ukraine funding fight. On Wednesday, the Senate voted not to begin debate on a defense authorization bill that would fund U.S. allies Ukraine and Israel in their fights against Russia and Hamas, stalling aid to both nations. CBN News national security correspondent Caitlin Burke explains why. Senate Republicans are holding their ground, insisting additional support for Ukraine must be tied to U.S. border security and part of any package Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer brings to the floor. As we've said for weeks, legislation that doesn't include policy changes to secure our borders will not pass the Senate. We cannot waste time on something like H.R. 2, which every single Democrat voted against, which could never pass the House, while the clock is ticking to get Ukraine the help it, it so desperately needs. Democrats say they've yet to receive a border package from Republicans that can actually pass the Senate and accuse the, quote, radical right of holding Ukraine aid hostage. In an impromptu public address Wednesday, President Biden said the inaction of Congress is a gift to Putin. We can't let Putin win. Say it again, we can't let Putin win. It's in our overwhelming national interest and international interest of all our friends. Any disruption <clears throat> in our ability to supply Ukraine clearly strengthens Putin's position. Republicans are playing hardball and they know they have a better negotiating position if they can get it to fail first to say, uh, to have Democrats look and go, oh my goodness, we really could run out of money here on Ukraine and the war there if we don't get serious on border secure funding. That's what this is all about. CBN News chief political analyst David Brody believes Democrats will have to go back to the negotiating table on border security to stand a chance at getting a funding bill through not only the Senate, but also the House. Republicans want concrete, specific uh, policy proposals, so to speak, inside that bill. They don't want just money. They want actual things, tangible things that are going to be done to stop uh, the flow of immigrants, uh, illegal immigrants into the country. We have to affect real policy change at the border, and that is a necessary condition to anything we do going forward. The blame game is strong right now, with Democrats accusing Republicans of putting American safety and global democracy at risk. Republicans say national security starts at home. 
Now, Congress is scheduled to be in Washington for only a handful more days before the end of the year. And the White House, meanwhile, is sounding the alarm about what would happen if they don't approve more funding soon. They say Ukraine's military would be stalled or even overrun by Russian forces. Speaker Mike Johnson told colleagues on Thursday that while they understand the very real security threats around the world, Wednesday's failed vote in the Senate demonstrated there's no path forward on Ukraine funding without meaningful, transformative change in policy at the southern border. Anti-Semitism on campus. The U.S. Department of Education is currently probing Harvard and nine other schools in a federal civil rights investigation under Title VI, which bans discrimination based on race or national origin at institutions that receive federal funding. Meanwhile, the presidents of three of the top universities in America, which includes Harvard's Dr. Claudine Gay, as well as Sally Kornbluth of MIT, and the University of Pennsylvania's Elizabeth McGill, testified at a House hearing this week as lawmakers demanded they do more to prevent anti-Semitism on college campuses. During an exchange with Republican Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, the three presidents were asked what Stefanik thought was a simple question. At MIT, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate MIT's code of conduct or rules regarding bullying and harassment, yes or no? If targeted at individuals not making public statements. Yes or no? Calling for the genocide of Jews does not constitute bullying and harassment? I have not heard calling for the genocide for Jews on our campus. At Penn, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Penn's rules or code of conduct? Yes or no? If the speech turns into conduct, it can be harassment. Yes. I am asking specifically calling for the genocide of Jews, does that constitute bullying or harassment? If the, yes speech or becomes, no. if the speech becomes conduct, it can be harassment, yes. Conduct meaning committing the act of genocide? The answer is yes. And Dr. Gay, at Harvard, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Harvard's rules of bullying and harassment, yes or no? It can be, depending on the context. What's the context? Targeted as an individual, targeted as, at an individual, It's targeted at Jewish students, Jewish individuals. I will ask you one more time. Does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Harvard's rules of bullying and harassment? Yes or no? Anti-Semitic rhetoric. And is it anti-Semitic rhetoric? Anti-Semitic rhetoric when it crosses into conduct that amounts to bullying, harassment, intimidation, that is actionable conduct and we do take action. So the answer is yes, that calling for the genocide of Jews violates Harvard Code of Conduct, correct? Again, it depends on the context. It does not depend on the context. The answer is yes, and this is why you should resign. These are unacceptable answers across the board. Those presidents have come under heavy criticism for their refusal to outright say calling for the genocide of Jews is offensive and a danger, as well as what critics say is the condoning of a culture of anti-Semitism on their campuses in the wake of protests and threats against Jewish students. CBN's Hillary Powell has more. On Capitol Hill, an urgent plea for protection on college campuses. Well, on my way to class, I was greeted with chalk reading 90% of pigs are gas chambered. As a student, despite what my university says, I do not feel safe. 
Let me be clear. I do not feel safe. I don't want to have to keep advocating for Jewish student safety on campus. It's not my job. Students ask for help after surviving violent anti-Semitism on their campuses. Now the presidents of MIT, Harvard and the University of Pennsylvania had to answer for their school's responses to an alarming surge in anti-Semitism. I know some Israeli and Jewish students feel unsafe on campus as they bear the horror of the Hamas attacks. We know there is further work to do. Work like making sure the University of Pennsylvania educates on anti-Semitism. We are in the midst of making certain that all anti-bigotry efforts ensure uh, education about anti-Semitism. I wonder if that type of education would have been in place at all of our college campuses um, before this, um, uh, whether we would have seen the massive uh, reactions that we have. Harvard University President Claudine Gay was asked about an ongoing federal civil rights investigation about possible violations of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. She declined to answer but condemned anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism is a symptom of ignorance and the cure for ignorance is knowledge. Harvard must model what it means to preserve free expression while combating prejudice. The president says the campus is taking action with a task force to assist students targeted by doxing attempts. The university presidents say they'll also combat xenophobia and all forms of hate. One anti-Semitism expert says she's weary of the national complacency and says it's the third time she's testified about the danger. Free speech does not permit harassment, discrimination, bias, threats, or violence in any form. Right now, 10 schools are under investigation by the Department of Education for possible discrimination based on shared ancestry and ethnic characteristics. Schools that violate Title VI can ultimately lose their federal funding. The Education Department is not allowed to discuss current investigations, but will keep monitoring the results. And it should be noted, activists are also wary of a rise in anti-Islamic rhetoric on campuses since the start of the war in Gaza. Kevin McCarthy steps down. Now, this doesn't come as a surprise. When he was ousted as speaker, a lot of us thought that it was likely that he would step down, but still kind of shocking nonetheless, his fall from grace. In an emotional video online this week, former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy announced that he will leave Congress at the end of this year, meaning he will not fill out the remainder of his term. Today, I am driven by the same purpose that I felt when I arrived in Congress. But now, it is time to pursue my passion in a new arena. While I'll be departing the House at the end of this year, I will never, ever give up fighting for this country that I love so much. To all those who have supported me through the years, especially our constituents, thank you from the bottom of my heart. We did our part. And when the stakes were the highest, we rose to the challenge. We were willing to risk it all, no matter the odds, no matter the personal cost. Simply put, we did the right thing. Thank you, God bless you, and God bless America. It really was just 11 months ago that McCarthy finally got his dream job ascending to the speakership, although after a torturous series of votes and deal-making with the far right of his caucus that weakened his power right from the start and ultimately led to his ouster. He also made a deal with Democrats to avoid a government shutdown in September, which essentially sealed his fate. McCarthy's next move, as you could hear from his video, 
is unclear. Ray pushes to renew global surveillance. In a hearing on Tuesday, FBI Director Christopher Ray warned lawmakers the Bureau needs to bring back a surveillance tool they say will help them as threats against the homeland grow following the start of the war in Gaza. It's Section 702 of the FISA Act, the Foreign Surveillance Intelligence Act. Essentially, it's called warrantless wiretapping. CBN News Capitol Hill correspondent Matt Galka has more on that. After 9-11, 702 provided a way to gather intelligence on targeted foreigners without a warrant outside of the country. The FBI director says with growing threats from Iran and China, it's reason enough to renew it now. What are we going to say to the family whose loved one's care was sabotaged when a hospital was taken offline by a foreign adversary and the FBI wasn't able to stop that cyber attack? FBI Director Christopher Wray told Congress authorizing Section 702 of FISA was vital to national security. What's the justification for not using every lawful tool to stop China from stealing our technology and undermining our freedoms. Because I can assure you, the PRC is not holding back. Ray told the Senate Judiciary Committee that world events, like the Israel-Hamas war, have elevated the terrorist threat level, with calls from terrorist organizations to attack America and its citizens. Blinking red lights analogy about 9-11, all the lights were blinking red before 9-11, apparently, obviously all of us missed it. Would you say that there's multiple blinking red lights out there? I see blinking lights everywhere I turn. The 702 program has come under fire over concerns about how it can be used, including the potential to spy on Americans. There is a concern that the tools, including FISA, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act 702, can be abused and that it can be used to target U.S. citizens. Let me just ask you directly, is it possible to target, lawfully target, an American citizen under Section 702? Well, I think so-called reverse targeting, uh, targeting of Americans through the, the end run of 702 is expressly prohibited. And 702 is set to expire at the end of the year. There has been a bipartisan push to reform some of those powers, again, over some of those abuse concerns, with some fearing it could be used on American citizens. On Thursday, Speaker Johnson sent a Dear Colleague letter laying out his plan for FISA, Section 702, next week. Plans to bring bills from both the House Judiciary and Intelligence panels to the floor under a special rule that would provide members an opportunity to vote in favor of their preferred measure. The right side of his caucus, some of them are not happy with the idea of reinstituting these measures. Senators McConnell and Schumer sent out an unusual joint statement saying they vow to work to overhaul surveillance laws as Speaker Johnson does face that anger from his right flank over the short-term FISA extension included in the NDAA. Title IX hearing. House Republicans called a hearing this week on the Biden administration's desire to include transgender people in Title IX protections. Enacted in 1972 as a way to ensure women and girls had the same rights and opportunities in college athletics as men, witnesses called by the GOP, such as champion swimmer Riley Gaines, blasted the administration's plan, saying it would do damage to female athletics. A school that knowingly allows a male athlete to take a spot on a women's team or allows a male athlete to take the field in a women's game is denying a female student athletic opportunity. And that is sex-based discrimination, and it violates Title IX, regardless of what the new regulations might say. 
It is my sincere hope that members of this committee, committee will take action to stop the Biden administration's illegal and administrative rewrite of Title IX. However, Democratic Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez says without these protections written into Title IX, underage girls could be faced with harmful and humiliating consequences. In this guise, under the guise of not only trying to further marginalize trans women and girls, we are talking about opening up all women and girls to genital examinations when they are under age. That's right. Potentially just because someone can point to someone and say, I don't think you're a girl. That's correct. The administration was supposed to institute these rules earlier this year. This week, they announced they will not finalize the new rules until March of next year, about one full year after their self-imposed deadline. And a separate proposal, specifically regarding transgender student-athletes, which was also due by October, will be released in March, according to an Education Department agenda that was released earlier this week. Back in November, more than 60 House Democrats sent a letter to Education Secretary Miguel Cardona calling on the agency to finalize its update, expressing concern over the delay. Senator Tuberville relents. Tommy Tuberville announced that he will allow most of the 450 military nominees to get confirmed and will drop his holds. This will only focus on 10 to 11 four-star nominees, and he demanded they get roll call votes. Tuberville told reporters they are released as we speak earlier this week. Tuberville did not receive any concessions from the Pentagon regarding their abortion policy, so at the end of the day, it was a confrontation that Tuberville created maintained and after many months lost. Another debate? On Wednesday night, Republicans held the fourth presidential debate of this election cycle, hosted by News Nation. Again, Donald Trump not in attendance. It was the smallest debate yet, with just four candidates on stage, Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis, Chris Christie, and Vivek Ramaswamy. Haley received the majority of the attacks, especially early on, and especially from Ramaswamy. You have a corruption problem, and I think that that's what people need to know. Nikki is corrupt. This is a woman who will send your kids to die so she can buy a bigger house. Ramaswamy holding up a sign on a piece of white paper that he had written out, Haley equals corrupt. Christie stepped in to defend her. This is a smart, accomplished woman. You should stop insulting her. Haley was also under attack from Governor DeSantis, arguing with the Florida governor over their past actions regarding bathroom bills and transgender students. When he was running for governor and they asked him about that, he said he didn't think bathroom bills were a good use of his time. You can go look that up. I signed a bathroom bill in Florida, so that's obviously not true. Christie stood out as the only candidate to continue to attack the actual frontrunner for the nomination, Donald Trump. You'll all be heading to the polls to vote, and that's something that Donald Trump will not be able to do because he will be convicted of felonies before then, and his right to vote will be taken away. You know, you, look, here's the bottom line. You can boo about it all you like and continue to deny reality. But if we deny reality as a party, we're going to have four more years of Joe Biden. In addition to hitting Haley hard, Ramaswamy spent some time supporting a number of conspiracy theories during the debate. January 6th now does look like it was an inside job, that the government lied to us for 20 years about Saudi Arabia's involvement in 9-11. 
that the great replacement theory is not some grand right-wing conspiracy theory. DeSantis took issue with Christie arguing against laws that would ban gender reassignment surgeries for minors. Christie saying parents should make that choice. You do not have the right to abuse your kids. This is cutting off their genitals. This is mutilating these minors. These are irreversible procedures. On foreign policy, Nikki Haley used her time as U.N. ambassador to explain how the hotspots in the world right now are all connected. There is no one happier right now than Putin because all of the attention America had on Ukraine suddenly went to Israel. And that's what they were hoping is going to happen. We need to make sure that we have full clarity. Responding on Truth Social, a spokesperson for Donald Trump called the debate, quote, a battle for second place that has become the biggest waste of time, money, and energy that politics has ever seen, and said it's time for the party to unify around Donald Trump. Weekly Trump date. Instead of attending the debate, Trump recorded an hour-long town hall event with Fox News' Sean Hannity that aired on Tuesday night, and one clip in particular is gaining some attention. The media has been focused on this and attacking you under no circumstances. You are promising America tonight. You would never abuse power as retribution against anybody. Except for day one. Except for? He's going crazy. Except for day one. Meaning? I want to close the border and I want to drill. That's not a drill. That's not not retribution. I'm going to be, I'm going to be, you know, he keeps, we love this guy. He says, you're not going to be a dictator, are you? I said, no, 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 other than day one. We're closing the border. And we're drilling, drilling, drilling. After that, I'm not a dictator. So that, one of President Biden's chief arguments against the reelection of Trump is his concern that the former president will use his second term in office to go after political opponents with retribution and try to enact as many sweeping actions as his office will allow, chipping away at democracy and creating a de facto dictatorship. All right, that's going to do it for the debrief portion of the podcast. And now let's get into our deep dive for this week. Well, the fourth GOP debate took place this past week, and while Donald Trump wasn't there again, the folks who are battling for second place behind him certainly were going at it. And joining me to talk a little bit about what we saw in that debate, as well as Donald Trump's town hall with Sean Hannity earlier this week, is Nathan Gonzalez from Inside Elections, good friend of the podcast, Faith Nation, CBN in general. Nathan, how are you? Thank you for coming back on the DC Debrief. Yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, I guess it meant that the last few times uh, went okay, so I'm I'm always happy to get that invitation Absolutely. back. Absolutely, it went, went more than okay. And but now that means the pressure's on. You know, game's been raised, bar's been set, so we gotta we gotta creep above it here. And there we go. Um, let's start with the fact that on Wednesday night you had four candidates. You had Nikki Haley, you had Ron DeSantis, you had Chris Christie, and you had Vivek Ramaswamy all there on stage. Of course. Donald Trump not there, the guy who's leading them by 20, 30, 40 points, depending on which poll and which state you're looking at. And at the start, it looked like Nikki Haley was almost acting as the front runner of the fourth. She really came under some some vicious attacks from from Ramaswamy. Um, I, I'm saying vicious attacks in, in her mind, I would imagine. Vivek Ramaswamy holding up the um, uh, a little thing that he wrote on a piece of paper saying Nikki equals corrupt. Um, you had Ron DeSantis uh, attacking her early in this debate. Does it seem to you as if she has risen to be the Trump alternative in the GOP primary right now? Well, one way to identify who has the momentum and who has who is the perceived uh, front runner is to look at others' actions, right? And we can tell by the actions of Ramaswamy and DeSantis that they believe Haley is a threat. 
Now, a lot of this debate felt very familiar because you had uh, candidates attacking someone who's in third place trying to get up to second place while largely leaving the first place uh, candidate uh, out of the the crosshairs, uh, you know. Trump did receive some criticism, uh, particularly from Governor Christie. But uh, it, it just feels like uh, you know, while while things change, uh, everything stays the same. And we just creep creeping closer and closer to Iowa, New Hampshire and the rest of the primary states with Trump as the as the clear front runner. I want to talk to you about what Christie had to say uh, about Trump and the fact that he really is still the only one of the four candidates who is really attacking the former president. And I think it almost felt like he was frustrated with his fellow contenders on stage. There was a point where DeSantis wouldn't answer a question as to whether or not he thought Trump was unfit to be president. And Christie called him on. He's like, this is a simple question. This is a yes or no. I'm the only one who's willing to say that he is unfit to be president. And what I don't understand is, you know, we're all acting on stage here like we are competing with just each other for this nomination when there's a guy who's dozens of points ahead of us in virtually every poll. There's a clear front runner and none of you guys are taking him on. I'm the only one doing it. Felt to me like Christie was a little frustrated with the fact that he's the only guy of all the Republicans really since this got started who has been hammering Trump hard. Yeah, I, I think we saw a difference between the candidates on the stage, meaning Chris Christie, who's kind of playing uh, as if he has nothing to lose. All right? I, I think he wants to win. He wants to be president of the United States, but he also realizes it's going to be tough. And so he's delivering a message while the other candidates are still believe that, you know, want to win the nomination and they covet Trump's supporters. So they are reluctant, uh, reticent to uh get crossways with Trump in order to, you know, cut off their ability to get those supporters. And, uh, you know, and it just, it's, it's what well, I wish we could go back in time and take Chris Christie's message and have Governor DeSantis deliver it starting at the beginning of the year, right? DeSantis gets, yeah. wins a huge reelection in 2022, jumps right into the presidential race and just goes on the attack against Trump. I'm not sure that it ends exactly, you know, it ends the same way, but I think it would be different with DeSantis as the messenger rather than Chris Christie. Because DeSantis was seen as a legitimate presidential candidate right from jump, whereas Christie's always been kind of the outsider. And the other thing that I was thinking of is when it's just one person who's levying the attacks against Donald Trump, if you're a Republican voter, you can dismiss it as saying this guy's got an ax to grind. This guy's yeah, got something exactly. personal with Trump. But when when the rest of the of the candidates are all equally and equal in their vociferousness going after Trump, then it's then I would imagine as a Republican voter, you stop and you say to yourself, are these guys onto something? And that leads me to my next question. Do you think that as we get closer to Iowa and New Hampshire, that these other candidates, DeSantis, Haley, and probably never Ramaswamy, but specifically Haley and DeSantis, do you think that they're going to start getting a little bit more aggressive and going after Donald Trump? I think they have to, but I don't know that they will. Right? Those are two. Those are two. Yeah. Uh, those are two. And uh, I, the, right now, the focus is on Iowa uh, and how many. There's always the talk of how many tickets are there out of Iowa, right? How many? How many uh, reasonable places, or how high do you have to finish to really be able to move on? And so that's why we see that fighting because everyone's trying to be the non-Trump alternative with the hope that Trump falters somehow, and then they are there in the in the in the wings waiting to to capture that support. Who do you think came out of this fourth debate with the most momentum? 
I don't know. I don't know that anybody really did, <laughs> John. <laughs> I, you know, we have to wait a few. Uh, we have to wait a few uh, days and even a couple of weeks to figure that out. You know, there was the the Wall Street Journal poll that came out today that had Nikki a national poll that had Nikki Haley pulling into second place. We it should go without saying, but we should remind folks that that doesn't include. You know, people didn't have a time to digest this debate uh, that responded to that poll. So it's going to take another, uh, at least another week or so to get polling from people who may have watched the debate and then started to maybe change their mind. Did anybody say anything at the debate that surprised you at this point? Or, and, and if not, do you anticipate, is there anything any of these candidates can say that would that would surprise you at this point? Well, actually, I shouldn't be surprised, but uh, I'm going to say Ramaswamy and in January 6th uh, and and other things that he he's really going down a trail of uh, uh, I'm going to call them conspiracy theories about January 6th being an inside job. And he Mm -hmm. uh, I guess I'm surprised to see someone uh, knowing the footage and watching what happened and, and being on the Capitol grounds, not inside the Capitol, on the Capitol grounds on January 6th. And then to hear a major party candidate from on a national stage start to, uh, I believe, whitewash uh, what what went on and diminish what went on. I, I was I was surprised to hear it, John. This might be my last podcast with you, but uh, I, I was <laughs> that was Never. Uh, I was I was saddened and, and surprised by that. Yeah. Um, After the debate, a spokesperson for Trump uh, posted something on Truth Social, essentially saying these debates are a waste of money and a waste of time and that it's time for the Republican Party to rally around the former president as he makes this push for a a second term in office. Do you anticipate any more GOP debates and what what's left that's going to come after this debate, if not? Well, I, I don't think there's any scheduled uh, by the RNC right now. I think there's talk among some media outlets about trying to get more. I mean, the media has an interest. They want to get viewers. They want to get people uh, clicking and tuning in and, and stuff. So there might be, but I don't believe anything's on about January. Iowa is coming up on January 15th. So when you incorporate you know, the holidays, uh, that's not, that is a short runway to get to January 15th. Uh, beyond that, we'll see what the primary even looks like. If, if Trump ends up winning Iowa and New Hampshire and uh, in in the other early states, then they're really the the race will be functionally over, and we're just going through the motions through the rest of the primary calendar. And, and as I'm looking on on Real Clear Politics, they do a good um, a, a totaling of of recent polling, and and you can look at the national polling, and I think that's instructive. But specifically looking at the state by state polling, I mean, in Iowa, you've got uh, there was a Trafalgar poll that was done in early December where Trump was up 45 to 22 on DeSantis with Haley in third place uh, at 19. In New Hampshire, you have Trump uh, averaging 45 percent, Haley's at like 18 percent. Uh, even in South Carolina, Nikki Haley's home state she trails she trailed trump in this uh in, in a um uh, a winthrop uh, poll done in uh mid-november 52 to 17 and so that's the with with trump not even participating in these debates it's been a smart strategy i mean they haven't really been able to land any punches on him because he has not been there so there wouldn't really be any reason to think he would he would attend any future debates exactly if he had uh suffered somehow in the polls after not appearing at the first debate, eh, you, maybe he starts to show up. You know, he shows up at the second one, uh, or or in, in subsequent debates. But there really hasn't been any consequence for him not showing up, and so you just see him uh, continue to to play by that. Uh, but John, I've been looking at Iowa specifically because it's the first one, and, and we hear a lot about oh well, 
previously the polls were wrong and voters in Iowa decide late. And so I, I want to, I, I went and looked, right? And yeah. at this point in 2015, ahead of the 2016 uh, caucuses, Ted Cruz was leading Trump by a few points in Iowa. And Ted Cruz ended up beating Trump by a few points in Iowa. So then let's go further. uh, Let's go a little bit further back to 2012. Uh, Rick Santorum ended up winning the Iowa caucuses. And that was, I would say, a legitimate surprise. Uh, But he started, he ended up winning with 25%. But he started his, uh, you could see a bump in December ahead of those polls. And there was also not a clear front runner like Trump. I mean, Trump is a de facto incumbent. That's a different dynamic than what was happening in 2012. And then 2008, uh, Mike Huckabee uh, won, the, uh, won the Iowa caucuses. And in late November of two, he won it with 34%. In late November uh, of the you know of the year before, he was at 29%. So there was, you could already see Huckabee's, Huckabee's rise. And so I, I say all that, that uh, if DeSantis or if Nikki Haley was really going to surge and, and take this thing in Iowa, we would we, we should start to to see that now and when we zoom out john i'm really this is one of the things i'm really struggling with with the idea that uh that uh maybe in iowa things are are different than what the polling says because for 7 years i've been conditioned to to <laughs> to to say that trump is being underestimated in the polls yeah. But now the people that are saying, well, actually, DeSantis is ground game. It's going to come through. It's like, so now you're telling me that the polls are overestimating Trump. Now, right. I'm open to it, but I'm just saying for seven years, I've been told that he's been <laughs> underestimating the polling. And now all of a sudden, oh, no, no, actually, he's he's overestimated. I'm like, well, I guess we're going to find out in, uh, you know, 40, 39 days. Right. And it's one thing if he's being overestimated by five to 10 points. It's another thing if he's got a 25, 30 point lead uh, in, in, in these different polls. So um, I, and we're talking about Donald Trump. And during this during this primary season, we've been talking a lot about the other candidates because we know who Donald Trump is from obviously his time in the presidency before the years afterwards. He has never stopped being in the news except for maybe nine months after he first was out of office. And so we're learning the reason we've been talking about Haley and DeSantis and Ramaswamy and Chris and, and everybody else is because they're new. We, we're, we're learning more about them and their policies and how they're engaging and interacting with each other. But we haven't been focusing as much on the things that Trump is saying, the things that Trump is doing. And it sure looks like he's going to be the nominee. On Tuesday night, he did a town hall with Sean Hannity on Fox News. And one of the things, really the headline from that is that he was asked by Hannity about some of the critiques or the reporting uh, that say that he is going to essentially be a dictator when he's when he takes his his second turn in office and was asking, do you do you plan to be? Are you going to be a dictator when, when you take office? And he says on day one, I will be. Obviously, Democrats have been pushing back pretty hard at that. What was your take on on what he said and what he meant by that? I believe him. <laughs> John, I, 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 I think, you know, uh, Trump is, is interesting because sometimes his, his appearances are, are viewed or, or described as stand-up comedian, um, you know, stand-up routines and stuff. And, and there is a level of where he's poking fun at people and stuff, but he's not, he doesn't just joke around. He's not that type of person. And I, I think we need to be, believe him. And I don't think people have wrestled enough with what a second Trump term would look like because this comment is not in a in a vacuum, right? There's right. a story in Axios today where it talked about the type of people that he might have in his administration or in the in the cabinet, and uh, and 
you know, exacting revenge and purging uh, members of the media or the government that are disloyal. I, like this is this is, I think, should be concerning because it fits in with who Trump is. Right, Trump. It's very personal. Politics is personal to Trump. And if you get sideways with him, he's going to come after you. And if he's president of the United States, he's going to have more uh, at his disposal, I guess, yeah. to exact the type of revenge that he is in. And he, I think he looks fondly on strong leaders, Vladimir Putin, Kim Jong-un, like he, his relationship with them, I think there's a, a an affinity for the type of power that they exhibit. And it's not hard to see how he would, he might try to exhibit, exhibit similar power. Yeah, he's talked about President Xi in recent weeks as a man of granite. He's a, he's a very smart man made of made of granite and running circles around the Biden administration. And so, again, to, to, to your point, uh, he, that's generally speaking how he has re- referred to President Xi. Uh, one of the other things that he said with Hannity uh, talking about President Biden's age and, and certainly the age of the president and how he looks on, on the campaign trail and Really, he's not on a campaign trail, really, um, but his, in his White House events, um, he certainly at times looks his age. And one of the things that Trump and Democrat and Republicans have been hitting on is is whether or not Biden's going to be mentally and physically up to the job of another four years in the White House, which I think most people would understand is a is a fair criticism. Donald Trump just a few years younger than President Biden, and he has had missteps on the campaign trail over these last few weeks. He has gotten he has mistaken what city that he's in. He has confused Biden with Obama, and he has explained those away. He has tried to explain those away and give some reasons for them. Uh, but I guess. Do you think that once the primary is over and Donald Trump most likely is the nominee, now you're going to see he's not just going to have to play to a Republican crowd. There, there's going to be a whole group of independents and, and Republicans out there who may not be enamored, who might be looking for a reason to vote some other way to look at Trump's age. And does it increase the pressure on Trump to be more perfect, for lack of a, for lack of a better word, when he's on the campaign trail and saying the things that he's saying? Trump is always going to benefit from a comparison to Biden, uh, that even though uh, there might be questions about Trump's health or his ability to serve a second term, if it's compared to Biden, he's going to be younger, right? He's going to mm-hmm. look better and look younger compared to Biden. If if Trump were running against uh, you know Gavin Newsom or, or Gretchen Whitmer of Michigan, then I think we'd be talking more about Trump's age. Uh, but Trump also has the luxury of he says so many things that are off the wall or just says so many things in general, including things that are off the wall that it, they kind of get dismissed, right? If if President Biden got on a stage today and started talking about water pressure and shower heads and how concerning that was, people think, well, Biden is, you know, he's, he's off, the, he's off the, he's off the rails here. And, but if yeah. Trump does it, it's like, oh, well, that's just, that's just Trump being Trump or, you know, it's, uh, there's a different standard. Uh, Biden is being held to a different standard than Trump, but that's whether it's fair or unfair. That is the political the political reality. And in the general election, well, we are we're talking about the general election, but with independent voters, uh, I think it, Democrats have to to cast as much doubt in voters' minds about a second Trump term, including maybe his personal ability, in order to make sure that voters who want change because they're dissatisfied with President Biden, that they can't vote for Trump because they don't believe he's a credible enough alternative. 
Well, we're going to be talking a little bit more as uh, as the weeks go on here about what Trump might do in his second term, some of the things that he has said, and, and start to focus in on that. And of course, obviously, if this race gets tighter, if there's a surprise in Iowa, New Hampshire, or South Carolina uh, that that shakes things up, we'll we'll certainly be able to revisit that. But um, certainly, I think in a lot of ways, like you said, Trump is under the radar. In, incredibly, uh, in terms of some of the things that that he is see- saying, as we are focusing on these these other candidates, uh, but for for all the things going on with the with the election cycle right now, you're going to want to make sure that you're catching everything that Nathan Gonzalez is doing over at Inside Elections. You can see him on CBN's Faith Nation. Uh, you can catch him on our website cbnnews.com whenever he is on one of our shows, as well as uh, on this fine podcast as well. Nathan, thank you for coming back on the DC Debrief. I really appreciate it. Thanks, John. Always fun. All right, time for the closer, and we'll finish with some Hunter Biden news to close out this week's festivities. The president's son hit with nine new charges in a tax-related indictment, new indictment, three of them felony counts, including allegations that the president's son failed to pay taxes, failed to file, evaded an assessment, and filed a fraudulent form. The indictment alleges that rather than pay his taxes, the defendant spent millions of dollars on an extravagant lifestyle. House Speaker Mike Johnson earlier this week said it's likely the House will hold hold a formal vote to launch an impeachment inquiry into President Biden over his business dealings with his son. Now, that does not mean they're voting on impeachment, but it would give Congress broader powers to enforce subpoenas and demand documents they say the White House has thus far refused to turn over. That is one of the things we'll be watching out for next week. All right, everybody, that's going to do it for this week's edition of the DC Debrief. Thank you all for listening and and checking us out. And please remember to tell someone about the DC Debrief. We can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else it is you get your podcasts. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We'll talk to you next time right here on the DC Debrief. We'll be right back.